The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is sponsored by Bove Shield Plunge, the new antimicrobial cattle dip from Mitchell's. If it's not Mitchell's, get back in the truck. As well as being a leading cattle dip, we're proud to announce that from this month, Bove Shield Plunge will be used by American military scientists to decontaminate old nuclear testing sites. Good luck, science dweebs! For 10% off your next delivery over 1,000 tons, run towards the blast! Hello, and welcome to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, the number one podcast for those involved or just interested in the production of beef animals and dairy herds. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is the podcast companion to the Beef and Dairy Network website and a printed magazine brought to you by Bovshield Plunge. This month, I travel to one of the country's great seats of learning, Portsmouth, to speak to Professor James Harkham. His book, Fallen Beef, The Hidden History of Cattle in Warfare, is being republished this year to coincide with the 100th anniversary of 1918 and make sensational claims about the number of beef animals involved in historic conflicts, especially during World War I. It is his contention that not only were cattle useful for practical reasons, for example as a source of milk or as a way of measuring the ideal width of a trench, they also performed combat roles and were central to the outcome of the war. I started by telling Professor Harkham just how much I'd enjoyed reading the book. I read it on the train down and it's a real page turner. Uh, it is, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a rip-roaring, it's a bit of a boy's own uh, adventure, I think. I mean, the, the book itself took a number of years to research and sources aren't always clear about the use of, uh, of cattle in warfare. Um, but they're there. They're, they're, they're gloriously, beautifully there. They're always there uh, for you to see in the stories. I think it, what I wanted was for people to, to kind of engage with those stories of individual cows, bulls in the First World War, bullocks, some of them. I mean, calves uh, as, as young as three months were, were serving on the front line. It was, um, it was horrible. These were active serving cattle. Uh, these were combat cattle. They they knew they had a job to do and they were willing to do it. They were willing to go out there to, to serve, to milk and to die for their country, which is something that I think many of us have forgotten. Well, that, that's a good point because I was reading this book and I my mouth was agape because, as you know, I'm I'm very engaged with the world of, uh, of cattle in general, much more than the, your average man on the street. And yet I hadn't heard any of the stories that, that were in your book. And it was just quite a strange experience really to be reading about these great moments of history in British history and international history as well. And I just had no idea that the cows were involved. This is it. Well, I, I think, I mean, uh, please forgive me. I don't want to get onto my uh, high cow, uh, as it were, but there has been something of a horse washing of history. Going back even to ancient times, cattle are there. Um, we're, we're told that the, the Trojan horse was indeed a horse, that it was clearly a Trojan cow filled with other smaller cattle. So it's your contention that the Trojan horse was a big wooden cow? Absolutely. But you're also saying that instead of it being filled with men, as, as we would think of it, warrior men, it was actually filled with cows as well, which is a step yes. further again. I think, it, I think it's obvious. I mean, the, the use of cattle in warfare is longstanding. You, you, you mentioned the phrase horse washing, and that's a big part of your book. You accuse various people throughout history of, of horse washing, not just modern historians, why is it horses that are thought of as the animal of war when, if you're, what you're saying is correct, cows have put in a much stronger shift over the years? 
It's horse washing, plain and simple. The horse historians have got on board. It's become very trendy, very fashionable to attribute everything in history to horses. What we have to bear in mind is that there were no horses in this country until the, the mid to late 60s. Really? Absolutely. What about um, if I were to go to London and walk to Trafalgar Square, and that's where, of course, we, uh, we venerate various people from history. There are statues everywhere, um, famously Nelson's Column yes. at the top of the column. Dedicated to Nelson Mandela. A lot of statues there with generals on a horse. Now, you're telling me that the first horse came to Britain in the 1960s. Yes. How does that tally with what we're seeing then with these statues that were made in the 1800s of of generals on big imposing... It's artistic license. It's plain and simple. Uh, They exist in paint. They exist in marble. Sure. Do they exist in real life? Not a chance. No, no more than the than the wood nymphs and unicorns and lions and tigers that you see in art. Absolutely fictional. It's a it's a mythical fantasy. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a it's a complete fantasy. It's a rom- it's a romanticised version of the real combat cattle, the uh, the war cows, that that would have been doing that job. If if the horse didn't exist at all, in nature even. Am I right in saying that's this is, this is it's, yeah. a, it's a romanticised vision? How is it now that we have a horse? Where did that come from? I mean, they were they were they were bred for pleasure um, originally in in Japan, I believe, after the war, um, and again it becomes something of a fad in the mid sixties. So when you say bred, bred from what? From cows? Yes, from from a mixture of cow, rabbit DNA, spliced with dolphin semen. So you're you're telling me that the horses that we see today were created what, within living memory? Yes. From cow DNA and, and, and dolphin spunk and a bit of rabbit. That's right. Jacked off a dolphin. That's what they did. Went to the operating table. Got a haircut of an Afghan hound, the sleek form of the dolphin, the sturdy four legs of the cow. You're looking at a monster. A Frankenstein's monster, basically. Yes. But obviously we must remember that Frankenstein's monster is the name of the monster, not the creator. Of course. There is no evidence for a horse. The only thing, only evidence we have of horses is horse shoes. Why would a blacksmith in the old days make a, a metal shoe for an animal that doesn't exist? They were made for luck, simply for luck. They're a good luck charm. Or sometimes you'd attach two to a good-sized cow and it would use those for punching. Conceptually, that's very interesting, isn't it? The idea that you'd create something as a good luck charm that you would call a horseshoe without any conception of what a horse is like. Have you never had a, a leprechaun on the end of a pencil? I have. Of course I have, yeah. A leprechaun is a, is a fictional beast. Yeah, but we have a conception of what a, a leprechaun is. So there must have been a time... But only that- because we've met tiny Irish men. But that, that's what I'm saying. What are the antecedents of the fictional horse? What were they basing that on? Because we, we, as you say, we base the leprechaun on the various small Irish men that you'll meet if you go to Ireland with their little hats and their little ginger beards. There's some, there's, it, it, you can see where the leprechaun comes from as an idea. Where does the horse come from as an idea? Are we, did people look at cows and think, how could they be sexier? Maybe. Well, this is what, Maybe. I'm, this is what I'm getting I mean, at. People, sailors, sailors who have been away from the land... They would look at a manatee and they would see a mermaid. And then what followed wasn't pleasant, 
but it helped a lot of sailors get through some very long voyages. So how is it then that if, if the horse literally didn't exist back before the 20th century, that in our public imagination, we think of horses as being central to human endeavour and human life going back as far as humans, basically? Well, it's, it's a delicious confection, isn't it? You know, it, it tastes sweet, so we want to eat it. You know, it, it's pure romanticism. It's in, in the same way uh, that if you go to uh, one of those tawdry battle reenactments on a bank holiday weekend or a, or a Renaissance fair, you know, it, it, it feels like history, but it isn't. It's just a fat accountant in a suit of armour mucking about in a car park. The cavalry charges of the First World War, of the Boer War, these are cattle. Sometimes they're camels. Very rare occasions, they are plucky sheep. Uh, again, if we look into the records, obviously you you, t- you take the livestock you can where you can. For the New Zealand contingent in the First World War, fighting at Gallipoli, that was sheep. And that is why they died in such huge numbers. If they'd been on cows, it would have been a different story. If they'd been on cows, <laughs> it would have been a walkover. What about the German side in the First World War? Did, did they have their own war cows and, and did they clash? on? The, did you have cow-on-cow cow cow, cow action? Cow-on-cow violence. I mean, uh, cow-on-cow violence. Uh, there are limited incidents that are recorded on the Western Front. But you have to remember, just as the British idea of, the, uh, of warfare is seen as a cattle train, the, the Germans operated very much a sausage machine. Pigs are intelligent animals, but they're also devious, crafty, They are disloyal. They uh, have no concept of pride. That's the difficulty with the pig. You can put it in a spiked helmet, sure. You can uh, give it a a big curly moustache. Why not? But that pig is never going to lead men to victory. Do you think that the reliance on pigs rather than cattle was one of the reasons why the Germans didn't win that war. It ultimately cost them the war. The trotters simply, they would sink through the mud. You have to remember the horrors of the First World War. This is a desolate landscape of filth, of human effluent, of uh, relentless craters of mud. Pigs don't see that as horror. It It was a pig's holiday. They were in hog heaven. They were literally like pigs in shit. And that's why they wouldn't respond to orders. What was the, the turning point in the, in the First World War? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think a lot's been written about this. Obviously, I have my own theories. If we look at 1917, uh, the Russians uh, have been knocked out of the war, the Russian Revolution. Their cattle potential is utterly wiped out. So really, Britain and France are alone on the Western Front. They're aware that the Germans are coming towards them, refreshed, fresh troops from the east. What do they do? Well, luckily Uncle Sam's there, isn't he? And I I think everybody recognises the tremendous contribution of the Americans in both world wars, uh, not only to morale, but in terms of armament and supply, but perhaps most strikingly of all, in the supply of Texas Longhorn cattle. They're formidable beasts. One young Welsh fusilier uh, described the first Texas longhorn he saw as, as just being like a, a wall of meat falling from the sky. Because these were, these were the first parachute cattle. Right, and that was a, a new thing that the Americans brought in. That's right, being dropped from airships over Hamburg, over the major naval ports of the Baltic. 
they'd seen the way things had gone on the Western Front, the smell of minced beef drifting across the trenches. So yes, they thought, put some goggles on these bad boys and let's drop them out of a Zeppelin. These were American-manufactured airships um, that sailed right above the German guns and even saw cattle falling uh, on university towns like Freiburg, uh, Lübeck. The Germans didn't know what had hit them. So what happens when a, when a Texas Longhorn cow gets dropped into a German university town? Well, they cancel lectures that day, I can tell you. If you, if you think about the, the, the sheer reach of those horns, and when that's coming down at 400, maybe 500 miles an hour, onto delicate ceramic tile work that's shattered through a thatched roof of an old beer keller, smithereens. The, the, these kind of things are utterly flattened. So this is different from the parachuting, you know, in the trench situation, you've got the parachuting cows coming down. You're talking yeah. about literally dropping a cow with no parachute out. Sometimes. I mean, th- this was, but, but you have to remember the it's, the, it's the hindquarters of the Texas Longhorn. That is pure muscle. They land like a cat. They land like cats. I've seen it done. We, uh, we combined with um, uh, the uh, technical college in Santa Fe, and we were able to test it in laboratory conditions, heights of up to 250 feet. <laughs> a Texas longhorn will walk away from that. Just land on its feet? Just land on its feet. Bounce away into the night. Keep those horns moving left, right, left, right. Maybe... You've got an old shopkeeper. He takes one horn in the gut. Family of four. The child's in a sailor suit. He's up in the air. He's flying. This is what we're talking about. Terror on the streets. Maybe they're not not the Allies' proudest moments. No. But it brought the armistice. It brought peace. What was the attitude of the, the British Tommy, the, the, the uh, human fighter in the World War I, towards their cows? Absolutely loved them. Yeah, they they had all kinds of nicknames for them. Uh, horny little blighters, the uh, um, your beef pals, uh, bully beef. They'd say, "Here comes the bully beef," you know, uh, more so than the cavalry. You know, here comes the cavalry. We we like to think people said they didn't. Here's our good mate, bully beef. In 1938, twenty years after the Great War ended the social anthropologist Willard Rugman set about collecting and recording the popular songs sung in the trenches by soldiers during the conflict. Most of the songs were about girls back home, and many are still well known today, such as Mildred You're My Kaiser, Daisy Daisy Where's Belgium Gone, and Dirty Edna's Back Passage. Of course, those songs may have been about cows back home, we sadly have no way of knowing. However, one short recording made by Willard Rugman captured a Great War veteran, then sadly homeless, living on the streets of London, singing the chorus of the old trench song, Me Old Beef Pal. Me old beef pal Me old beef pal Here he comes Me old beef pal Oh, 
When was the last time that a cow was involved in a in a combat situation? Active service cattle for the British Army was phased out by 1982. Um, the last serving cow died in the Falklands when he was uh, dropped on an Argentine radio operator. Killed the fucker stone dead. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for that. Posthumously? Yes. Operation Jerky as it was known, was very much a symbolic act. Thatcher's government keen to show the Argentine junta that uh, they could not be bested. They realised that they had to make some early symbolic moves against the occupying force. It would take weeks before the task force uh, reached the South Atlantic. But what they could do was get one of their best cattle into a Hercules, refuelling at Ascension, straight to the Falklands, and he walked willingly out of the back of that plane and with pinpoint accuracy took that guy out. And uh, it's a funny story, actually. It's, uh, you'll know that in the Second World War, of course, it was quite uh, common to write on the side of the bombs, this one's for Herr Hitler. No, oh, you won't like this, Himmler. I imagine bombs annoy you, Herr Goebbels, that kind of thing, ribald humour. And... On the side of that cow, uh, whose name is still classified, bit of steak for the Argies. They wrote that on the side? Yeah. Bit of steak for the Argies. Because they love steak. Yeah. More after this. Are you hiring? Posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter has revolutionised hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, it identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. Right now, network members can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com beef. That's ZipRecruiter.com beef. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And that's address again, ZipRecruiter.com Slash beef. Slash beef. Slash beef. Patty, weird voice, will you have this man to be your husband? 
to live together with him in the covenant of marriage. Will you love him, comfort him, honour and keep him, in sickness and in health, as long as ye both shall live? I will. <sighs> slash Gregory Beef. Did somebody order beef? Will you take this? Oh my God, Slash Beef. Slash Beef. Slash Beef. Slash Beef. I'm Slash Beef. Slash Beef. Slash Beef. You're marrying Slash Beef. Oh my God, I'm marrying Slash Beef. Marital Beef. Slash Beef for my husband. Beefy nuptials. Slash Beef. I'm Slash Beef. Slash Beef. Slash Beef. ZipRecruiter.com. Slash Beef. Halfway through the interview, Professor Harkham hit me with a shameful and horrifying statistic. Over 20% of the homeless cattle on our streets served in our armed forces. If you look under a railway bridge now and see a cow, that cow has a service history. But you'll often see that the cow is under, under bridges and underpasses and things, and they have got the medals pinned on. Sometimes, yes. Often they'll have sold them for some cheap silage, like the, the, the very cheapest stuff. George Cross for three litres of turbo silage. And there they are, out of their minds, don't even know who they are, what they did. Udders full of muck. It's a tragedy. And you can't milk them, can you, once they've had that? No. No, it's like battery acid or cold piss. Have you ever drunk the, the milk of a, of a cow that's been on turbo silage? I mean, I've had my own dark times. But out of solidarity, yes. I mean, when you look into a cow's eyes and it says, what am I here for? If I can't fight, if I can't milk, what can I do? How do you win that cow's trust? How do you convince that cow to fight again, but a new battle, a battle of self-worth? You've got to suck its tits, haven't you? That's what you've got to do. Now, I don't mean to, to question the veracity of, of your work, and uh, it's obvious that you are uh, held in esteem by many, a great many people, but I, I think it would be remiss of me if I didn't bring up some of the criticism that, that your work has, has faced. Oh, yes, the, the naysayers, as I like to call them, the horse brigade, maybe. Yeah, yeah. well, let's start with with actually the, the, the wider criticism, really, that your book uh, displays a kind of level of jingoism, militarism, that glorifies war in general but 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 more so war involving combat cows and that actually the campaigns we've seen o- over the past few years to phase out cows from active service which which started in the 60s with the hippie movement then of course filtered through into mainstream society uh, and now there are you know being drawn up conventions in the in the UN that a cow shouldn't be involved in war it's it's often seen uh, as a as a kind of cousin of the the anti-child soldier movement there's a feeling that these cows are innocent they can't make their own decision to be involved in war that it, it is wrong you know these are all things that have been discussed at the highest level of international politics and some people think that your work ignores that change of opinion that, that has come about over the past 50 years or so and that you're behind the times now how do you feel when someone says that to you behind the times well i mean as a historian perhaps maybe it's my business to be behind the times but uh, I would not say that my work glorifies warfare. What it, what it does is it honours sacrifice. And yes, I know there are people at the United Nations who've made a lot of very pretty speeches. I mean, a lot of what maybe I would perhaps unfashionably call bleeding heart liberals like Kofi Annan or Robert Mugabe. These are all people that have spoken out for the right of the cow. And yet I say the right of the cow 
is a right to choose. You've somewhat dodged, though, still the question that there is evidence that over the years, most of the cows that we saw in combat situations had not chosen to be there. They'd been sometimes knocked out, knocked unconscious, and they woke up in a, in a war zone. You know, they were on a pasture somewhere in a part of a dairy farm, and then a man from the army comes up, offers them a, a handful of dock leaves, and then smacks them over the head with a cosh. And before they know it, they're in the center of, you know, a, a world conflict. That, I would say, is part of the training process. But they haven't chosen to go on that process. Do you, I want you, what I want from you, really, I want you to acknowledge that these, this campaign to get cows out of warfare comes from a place of, of a fact that, that cows didn't get to choose. If they hung up their battle livery and toddled off back to the, the pasture, they would be shot. They would be shot. But how many cows were shot for cowardice? It is in the tens of thousands. I, I would refute that. My own research indicates that the, the number of combat cattle executed for cowardice was very slim. Perhaps 10 or 12. The uh, numbers you're referring to, I think, are simply fat foxes or ill rabbits that have been dispatched with a hammer or shovel and then used to beef up the statistics quite literally. I mean, cow, you, we, we must remember that the very idea of cowardice is for uncow-like behaviour. That's what we're looking at here. So when you see people condemned for cowardice, they have, they've taken their chances, they have thrown their dice, if you will, that's the, the root of the word comes from, in war, uh, unlike a cow. Cow war dice. So, so that's, where, that's where the word comes from, is yes. cow war dice. Yes. Right. This is a little bit awkward to, to talk to you about, but it does feel like something I, I, I need to bring up. Your standing in the academic community is patchy, should we say. There, there, you have your acolytes and you have your naysayers. The word crackpot gets thrown around, as I'm sure you're aware. If you type your name into Google, there are a, a few rumours that come up on the, on that front page there. And uh, I think anyone listening who, who might be Googling your name just to, to see what you see what you've been up to. And... Fudged research, gambling debts. Yes, I mean, I... <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, we... it's it's a real it's a real picture. There's one thing that was particularly worrying to me. I just wanted to be able to clear it up with you, really, and you, and you can uh, confirm or deny this, really. I'll deny it. Which is that there are rumours that that you were seen throughout last summer, last year, and there were a number of witnesses who said that they saw you down at the dockyard in, in Portsmouth pushing what looked like a horse in a bag into the sea. And and that wasn't just once. I think I read certainly five or six witness statements. Some people saw you dragging a big bag t towards the dockyard. I just want to give you the opportunity to, to, to clear up what was going on there. Well, I mean, if, <laughs> if people are going to level ridiculous accusations, and I'm certainly going to deny them, um, maybe I should perhaps first lay bare a few very simple facts. Have you ever put a horse in a bag? Do you know what a horse in a bag looks like? It looks very similar to eight or nine old VHS recorders in a bag. Very, very similar indeed. So you're saying you were disposing of household waste 
by pushing it into the sea. Absolutely. I can see why people make that assumption. If they see something that looks a bit like a horse and then they look uh, and read what you've written over the years about horses, some of the things you've said are pretty stark, pretty bald with your attitude when it comes to horses and people who like horses. Sure. I don't have a lot of time for horses. Does that mean I want to hurt horses, abuse horses? I don't have the time. But if I was speaking to horses now, maybe I'd say... Maybe all horses should be seahorses, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, that sounded a little bit threatening, to, to be honest. Oh, I don't, th- I don't think so. I never... Just saying all horses should be seahorses sounds like, you know, maybe you think all horses should be bagged up and pushed into the sea, but that's not what you said. You know? no, that isn't. If you, if you want to suggest that was my implication, you can draw what you want, as long as it's not a picture of a horse, because I'd spit on it and throw it in the sea. Professor James Harkham, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. A big thank you to Professor James Harkham for that fascinating interview. We wish him all the best with all his future endeavours, whether that's writing another book that is largely rejected by the academic community or pushing bags of old video recorders into the sea. His book, Fallen Beef, The Hidden History of Cattle in Warfare, is out now. And if you'd prefer to listen to it rather than read it, an audiobook is available, read by the hologram Les Cheese. So how is it that you first came to be interested in, in this area of study? I think it always piqued my interest. Even as a child, uh, growing up, I remember my grandparents' house. Um, there was this old tattered-edged, sepia-tinted uh, photo of a man who was, you know, all just moustache and hat, sat there proudly astride what was clearly his cow his battle cow, full military uniform, regalia. Uh, Turns out that was my great-grandfather on the eve of the Battle of the Somme. And that cow brought his body back from six miles behind enemy lines. Took eight months. The uh, the old family story, of course, is... uh, they were, they were hearing the bells ringing out, marking the armistice. Uh, they thought everyone would be coming home. It's a single hoofbeat on the window pane of the drawing room. Open the door. There, there she is. His cow. Father's cow, they say. The old colonel slumped across the back. Just gristle and holes, really. In the mouth of that cow, a telegram. And that telegram was from the king. It said, well done. Well bloody done. According to Professor Harkham's research, 
over 3 million cows died during the course of World War I. Official statistics put the number at 7. Whichever figure you believe, why not take a moment to remember them today? They fought and died for your freedom. Your freedom to eat beef. Until next time, beef out. Thanks to Mike Shepard. The Dead Pilot Society podcast brings you hilarious comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Aubrey Plaza, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, John Hodgman, Adam Scott, Molly Shannon, Busy Phillips, Tom Lennon, Anna Camp, Laurie Metcalf, Felicia Day, Michael Ian Black, Adam Savage, Paul Shear, Ben Schwartz, Skylar Aston, Mae Whitman, Josh Molina, Ben Feldman, Nicole Byer, Jason Ritter, Sarah Chalk, Steve Agee, Jane Levy, Allison Tolman, Danielle Nicolette, Casey Wilson, Anna Ortiz, Lorraine Newman, June Diane Raphael, Kieran Chipka, Ed Weeks, Zach Knighton, Carrie Kenny Silver, John Ross Bowie, Jamie Denbo, Janet Varney, and many more. Listen at MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott, and we're the hosts of Everything's Coming Coming Up Simpsons. Simpsons. We are a Simpsons podcast brand new to the Maximum Fun Network, and every episode we cover a different episode of The Simpsons um, that is a favorite of our special guests. We've had guests that are showrunners and writers and voice actors like Nancy Cartwright, all people that have worked on The Simpsons, and we've also had guests like Weird Al and people that are on the Max Fun Network already, and each week we will talk to a very cool guest about their favorite episode, and it is so much fun. So if you like The Simpsons, come listen to Everything's Coming up Simpsons. All right, smell you later. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.